Aren't those some lovely truths? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Amen, right? Um, If you are here and you would like a Bible to use during the service, Carl's got it over here. And come get it, I'm tired. Okay. The truths of that song that we just sung, that I am his and he is mine, spot by the precious blood of the Lamb. Amen, right? It's a wonderful reminder of what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will turn to his word. God, you have been so good to us that we can call you our own, and you call us your own, that by the blood of Jesus, you adopted us into your family, And God, you did so before the foundation of the world. God, before you spoke anything into existence, before you formed the atoms and the molecules that make up every cell of our bodies, before the dust that formed the stars was created, you predestined us for adoption. Lord, before we did anything good or bad, before we did anything worthy of praise or anything worthy of condemnation, you decided to make us part of your family. Lord, that truth should humble us. Lord, with the psalmist, we say, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Lord, you have fashioned us. And we come to your word. We need your help to understand. Lord, we know that your rules are righteous. And then in faithfulness, You have afflicted us. Lord, you have allowed us to go through things individually or collectively that we might not have asked for, and yet they were good and from your hand. Lord, let your steadfast love comfort us according to your promise to your servants. Lord, as we hear your word, may it bring us comfort, may it correct us, and train us for righteousness. May we fall more in love with you in light of it. As always, may the words on my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you have your Bible, I I invite you to open up to John chapter 2, verse 13, and that's on page 1054 in one of the foyer Bibles. Today we're going to continue going through John and we're going to look at a story between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's actually quite interesting. Jesus and the religious leaders get into an argument. 
They, they get into a fight over a topic that maybe we, we're not super certain about. They're going to get into an argument over the topic of worship. Jesus and the religious leaders are going to have a conflict over who has authority over worship. Who has the right to dictate what is worship and what is to happen in worship. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and this causes you to ask questions. Or maybe you're not a Christian and it causes you to ask other questions. The topic of worship can be a bit nebulous at times. Maybe you, you'll think to yourself, what is worship? What, 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 is, what exactly does the term worship mean? Or maybe you wonder, what, do, what, what, do, what exactly do Christians worship? Or is it possible to worship the wrong things? Or maybe, Jesus, why would you even argue about worship? Isn't that a personal decision? Isn't it your choice how you worship? And Jesus, don't you know that you don't bring up religion and politics? Right? Because then you do what? You argue. We're going to look at this passage and we are going to see Jesus confront over the topic of worship. So if you have your Bibles, or you have the Pew Bible, for your Bible, because we don't have pews. Oh. Good thing it didn't have anything in it, right? Someone might get really angry with me if I spilled on the carpet now. Here's the word of the Lord for you this day. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away! Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Now, depending on how familiar you are with the Gospels, this story in this place may cause you to ask a question. If you're familiar with the synoptic Gospels, which would be the other three Gospels, and they're called synoptic because they're similar in nature, they tell a similar story, when you read them back to back, you'll notice, hey, they, they kind of are telling the same story over again. 
In John's gospel, this story is at the beginning. In the other gospels, there is a story that sounds awfully similar at the end. And before we get to our big idea, I think it's important enough for us to consider, just briefly, the rationality behind there being one at the beginning and one at the end. Because, you know, you will encounter people who will tell you that this is a contradiction and in light of that, you should not trust God's word. They will use this as a reason to show you or to try and make you believe that God's word is not trustworthy. And that's just simply not the case. There are two possible reasons why this would be here and it would be in the end of the other Gospels. First answer is that, well, there's just one story. There's just one time where Jesus clears the temple and John has moved it to the front of his Gospel for thematic purposes. John is telling his story less in a chronological perspective and more of grouping ideas together. We do this when we tell stories all the time, right? You tell the story of your wedding, and you'll group all the things that went wrong all at once, even though they didn't go wrong all at the same time, right? Like, there's a picture of Amber eating a uh, piece of cake at our wedding, and she's like, because it was not what she expected it to taste like. But when we tell the story, we tell that thematically around it. Or you tell about the, your great animals that you've shot or fish you've caught, and you, you tell the big ones, and you put them all together, and that's one argument for what John is doing. John is putting it at the front, thematically, for that purpose. The second option is that Jesus actually clears the temple twice. And I think that's the best explanation. That Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, clears the temple, and then at the end of his ministry, clears the temple again. Now, why would this happen twice? Well, Jesus is doing it for two distinct purposes. One is to show and try and correct the religious leaders to get their attention, to get things back on track, and the other is a final judgment for the temple, that the temple is no longer going to suffice for worship for God. There's enough differences in the stories to indicate that it could be two stories. Now, you think, why would the religious leaders let Jesus do this twice? Well, have you ever tried to keep your eye on someone for three years and not let them do something twice? Parents, have you ever been able to keep your eye on your kids for two days and prevent them from doing something twice that you didn't want them to do? It's not easy when there's a guy walking around with a crowd and they're following him and he decides to do it. Friends, whether you side on it being one story or two stories, you can trust God's word. God's word is trustworthy. Now, there's not sufficient evidence to make an airtight case for one or the other, but I think the best is that there were two cleansings. And that was super interesting, right? I, do I need to get you all to say amen like five more times to wake up again? <laughs> that was super interesting, right? <laughs> it. It may not be interesting in that sense, but it is something that you need to know because you will have people that will tell you, oh, look, they're in different places. It, clearly, you can't trust God's word. Friends, all the things you read on the internet about the untrustworthiness worthiness of God are probably a load of hooey, and you should not read, believe everything you read on the internet. So, so what's the 
Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So what is our big idea for today? Our big idea for today is God passionately pursues proper worship from his people. God passionately pursues proper worship from his people. This is a question of authority. Does Jesus have the authority to dictate what happens in the temple? Yes. Does Jesus have the authority to tell people how to worship? Jesus says yes. The religious leaders say no. No, dude, you... You're not a priest. You're not even a trained rabbi. You have no authority here. And yet, Jesus is going to show that he has the authority. Jesus is going to call his people to return to proper worship. And he's going to go about making the means of doing so available. Jesus is going to provide a way for proper worship to be restored. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, what does worship mean, right? It's kind of, like we said, nebulous, or it's, it's one of those words that you, you know it by context, but maybe you don't know exactly what it means. The term simply means to ascribe proper value and worth to God in action and attitude. It comes from the idea of falling down before a God and ascribing worth to that God. It, the, the Hebrew word would literally have to do with bowing down. It is reflective of and informed by God's character and his actions. So God's character, who he is at his core, and what he has done are the things by which we worship him. And that is what worship is. Worship is so much more than we often give it credit for. It is all of life takes place every day. What what do we see Jesus doing here, though? Jesus is now going to come into the temple, and he is going to encounter worship gone wrong. Worship gone wrong is what Jesus encounters. He encounters a disruption in the temple. Look at what verses 13 and 14, he says, it says, the Passover, so that time of year, one of the three major feasts that the Jews were commanded to observe, Jesus comes and shows up at the temple. Jesus shows up at the time of year when the city of Jerusalem would swell. Its population would increase by thousands. You think traffic is bad? It gets really bad that day. And not only is traffic bad in the city, because there's way more people, all the hotels are booked, you, you, just, you can't go anywhere without bumping into someone you know, or some random crazy guy. It's not just the city, it's also the temple. The temple is going to have more people visiting, more people coming and going, more people taking up space. And what does Jesus find in the temple In the temple, he finds those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Some ingenious men decided that they would make a buck off of this time of year. They were going to make some extra money. It's all a convenience for you, though, because these people had to travel thousands of miles, hundreds of miles. And do you really want to carry a sheep with you if you have to walk all that distance? No. Do you really want to lead an ox with you for 150 miles? No, so 
hey, we'll just make it easier for everyone. We'll, we'll let them buy their animal here. And you know, there might be a slight convenience charge that goes with it. Yeah, we have to change the money to be the proper money of the city. And where are they doing this? They're doing it in the temple. Not around the temple, not in the city, not outside the city walls, but in the temple. There's actually, I actually have a picture here. So what it, where this is taking place is within the walls, but outside the main section of the temple. So do you see the inner wall? I need a, I wish I had a laser pointer. Um, so there is a section called the Court of the Gentiles. It's the area of the temple where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and worship God. It's within the temple. It is specifically made for people to come and worship. If I were to venture to guess, every single one of us in this room would probably be in that area of the temple. If you want to go further in, you have to be a woman and Jewish by, by being able to actually trace it from your mother's line. And then if you want to go further in, you have to be a man who is wholly and purely Jewish. You can't be half Jewish. You can't be part Jewish. You have to be 100% Jewish. And then if you want to go even further in, you have to be of the tribe of Levi. And then if you want to go even further in, you have to be uh, of the line of Aaron. And then you have to be the high priest to go all the way in. Where this is taking place is the place where we would worship where we would be called to come and offer prayers and alms and thanksgiving. Can you imagine trying to pray and connect with God in the midst of oxen lowing and sheep bleeding and pigeons, what do pigeons do? Cooing. And money exchanging hands and money bags shaking. Can you imagine trying to do that? We all get distracted when there's lots of noise going on, right? Can you imagine trying to have a moment where you are trying to worship God and it is filled with a bazaar? You are at the swap meet when you're supposed to be worshiping God. You are in Walmart on Black Friday when you're trying to worship God. Good times, right? their actions are actually preventing worship. They thought that they would be providing a service to Jewish people, but they've missed half the point of worship. Worship was to be a place where, or an, a thing that everyone could do. Abraham was to be a light to the nations. And yet, the Jews have lost the focus. They don't care anymore. They don't care if proper worship is going to take place. And you know what? The sad fact is, is this is not a new habit for the people of Israel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and you're familiar with the book of Exodus, a story might come to mind that has to do with improper worship. If you're not, the book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible and it's actually the one that most of the movies like the Ten Commandments and the Prince of Egypt are based upon. In that book... God leads his people free. He sets them free from captivity in Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai and he says, this is how you're going to worship me. And he gives them a list of rules and one of those rules is 
Don't make any images. Don't worship any images. Don't uh, make things that you are going to worship in place of me. And some time goes by that people hear this rule and they say, yes, we agree, amen. And then something happens. Moses goes up on the mountain again and some time goes by and they think Moses has died. And so they ask Moses' brother, Aaron, hey, will you make us some golden calves that we can worship? And you just think to yourself, what are you guys thinking? We just talked about this. You're not supposed to do this and you're going to do it. Hmm. Israel, you're going to get it wrong this one time? No, they're going to get it wrong again and again and again. Friends, worship gone wrong is a human problem. It is not a one-time issue. It is also not just a people of God issue or the Israelites issue. Look around you in the world. You see worship gone wrong all the time. You go to India and you will see Hindu temples. You go to Burma, Thailand, China, Japan, you will see Buddhist temples. You go to Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, you will see Muslim mosques. If you go to Turkey, you will see buildings that used to be churches that have been conformed into mosques. You go to Jerusalem and you will see a mosque on the site that the temple used to be. But this is not just strictly a world problem. This is a human problem that we see here. We may not have temples we go worship at, but I'll tell you what, you go to a C- the Seahawks game and there are some people worshiping. You go to Wall Street and you will see some people worshiping. You go to Las Vegas or L.A., you will see people worshiping. Worship is anything we put and elevate above its proper place. But this is not just an Israelite problem and it's not just a world problem. We have to let the text also speak to us. It can be an us problem too. We can let worship go awry for us. We can make it so that way if we obey God, He has to give us what we want. Well, if I obey all the rules and I do everything perfectly, then then Jesus has to give me this thing that I'm asking for. Friends, Jesus doesn't have to give us anything we're asking for that he has not promised to do. Or maybe we think of worship as simply singing songs and worship is something we do for an hour and a half on Sunday morning or maybe even 45 minutes if you're only thinking of it in musical Worship is far more than that. Worship is all of life. Every day we need to ascribe worth to God and declare Him good. Or maybe we get worship wrong when we make worship about us. We walk out and say, man, I was so filled by that worship today. Or, man, I really didn't get anything out of worship today. And we ask ourselves, who is worship about? Is it about me? Is it about what you get out of it? Or is it about what he gets out of it? He is the focus. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be moved emotionally when worship occurs. Right? We just can't use that as the standard by which we judge whether worship was good. It is good to be moved emotionally in worship. Because God has done great things. I'm no longer a slave to fear. 
he, I am his and he is mine. Think of all the songs we declared this morning. All the truths. They should move us emotionally. But we can't use that as the sole means of whether worship was good. Because sometimes when you encounter God and you worship him, it causes you to do other things, right? Sometimes it causes you to fall on your knees and say, my God, my God, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Or it causes you to fall on the ground and lay prostrate and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We need to let worship go the full breadth of emotions. Because worship is about, for, and rooted in Him. Not about us. We get something out of it. We get a lot out of it. We remind each other of what we believe. But it's about Him. So what does Jesus do in light of worship gone wrong? He removes hindrances to worship. Imagine again, you, you picture this scene. You, you walk with Jesus into the temple. And you can tell Jesus is a bit agitated. And he's, maybe his blood pressure starting to rise. Jesus, are you okay? And he starts to grab some cords. Like, what are you doing? And he goes and he sits in a corner or he stands in the corner by himself and he starts to craft something made out of cords. And you, Jesus, what are you making? You'll see. Jesus, that kind of looks like a whip. What are you going to do with that thing? Hold on, just a minute. Okay, guys, I suggest you step back. It's going to get a little intense. And he takes the whip and he drives the cattle out, and he drives the sheep out, and he turns over tables, and money goes everywhere, and it's a commotion. I've never been on a cattle drive, but I've seen the movie City Slickers, and I know it's not quiet. <laughs> like, guys, like this is, it's not like everyone calm, it's not like the fire drill at school, right? It's not calm and collected. No, it's scattering, and, and Jesus is not tame. Jesus is exactly the opposite of the picture that culture often gives us about him. He is not a tame man. He shall not be controlled. He's the strong man, and he is on a mission because he is consumed with zeal for God's house. It's much like the quote from the Chronicles of Narnia where they're talking about Aslan, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Guys, Jesus is not safe, but he is good. What is he doing when he clears the temple? He's removing hindrances to worship. He can't let any of them stay. Because if you let an ounce of it stay, it will corrupt it again. Many of you have dealt with cancer, right? 
What do you do when you're dealing with cancer? Do you leave any of it there? No, you've got to get rid of all of it. You have to nuke it. It has to be gone totally and completely so your body can restore in health with good cells. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is removing the hindrances to worship. He can't let any of it remain. Friends, is Jesus working to remove something from your life? Oftentimes we might misapply this text and say, well, it's about me getting rid of things in my life, about me doing the work to get rid of things. But no, this text is 100% about Jesus doing the work. Jesus is the one who comes and removes the false worship. Is Jesus working to remove something from your life? Sometimes he does this in the still and the quiet. He whispers to us. We read his word and we think, oh man, I need to course correct here. Or we have a conversation with a friend and that friend gently and lovingly points us in the right direction, maybe not even intending to. Or maybe we sing a song or you hear an, a, a phrase or a statement made by one of us as we're preaching and it causes you to think, man, I need, I need to make a change. Maybe it's that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit working in the back of your head telling you, come back, God is wooing you. And then other times he treats you like he throws a ton of bricks at you. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. There are times where God will allow suffering to occur in our lives to cause us to course correct. He is speaking to us in those moments to get us to pay attention, to tell us your worship has gone awry. But friends, it is a loving hand that is disciplining us like a parent disciplines a child. I know in my own moments of affliction, God has used them to reorientate my life to recalibrate my priorities to adjust what tasted good to me if you've gone through a significant period of suffering in your life maybe you've observed that where god used it to make you no longer desire temporary things and instead, you grew in your desire for things that are eternal. Friends, if God is at work in your life in such a way, don't fight Him. It's not worth fighting Him. Go with Him. Because He is good. He loves you. And he wants you to come to him. Then after Jesus removes worship, what does he do? He gives a new center for worship. Jesus, 
actually loses the argument. Jesus says, here's the proof that will happen for you. You'll destroy the temple and I'll raise it up. And everyone laughs at him. That's not even worth giving a response to because it's so absurd. But it's only absurd in the moment. It is not absurd in hindsight. We look back and we see that Jesus was actually right. That he had prophesied his death, burial, and resurrection. And that after that, his own disciples believed the scriptures and believed his word. What they didn't realize is that the new temple was already there. The temple is simply where we worship God. Where God resides, God was residing in a new temple. And it was the flesh and blood of Jesus. Why does Jesus replace the temple, though? Because nature abhors a vacuum. Humanity is created for worship. And if we do not have something to worship, we will put something else in its place. There's always going to be something we worship, whether it's Jesus, a car, a person. Well, Jesus is a person, but you know what I mean. A task, a job, a life that we want. Jesus has to replace it. It's kind of like trying to not think about something. Have you ever tried to not think about something? Does it work very well? I'm going to not think about losing the Super Bowl. Ah. Okay, we're going to do a test here, okay? Don't think about pink elephants. Hmm. Your laughter tells me something. When we try to not think about something, we find ourselves consumed by it. This is actually why the Apostle Paul instructed believers in Philippians 4 to, instead of worry, pray. Because Paul knew that if you told yourself, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, you're going to worry. So you have to replace it. Same is true for worship. Since we were created to worship, we will worship something. And there's only one thing, one person that can stand up to our worship, and that's Jesus. This story is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Think about it. We're going along in life and we're worshiping all the wrong things. Our worship is awry. It has gone off the rails. We are worshiping something that is wrong to worship. And I don't say that meanly, but if if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus and you haven't put your faith, hope, and trust in Him, you don't worship Him, your worship's in the wrong place. Because only Jesus can stand the weight of our worship. And we don't even know that our worship has gone wrong and Jesus enters the scene. Jesus comes in and he says, your worship is wrong and he removes that which hinders our worship. He comes in and he gives us a new heart and he makes it clean and he replaces that which we love. He gives us new desires and new longings and those are rooted in Him. But how do we know that Jesus can stand the weight of our worship? Well, it's in the very prediction that He makes in this, that that Jesus would die and He would raise again. 
He told the religious leaders, destroy this temple. He didn't mean the physical temple made of bricks and stone. He meant the temple of his body. He predicted the action which they would do. And he said, I will raise it on the third day. What man in history has been involved in bringing himself back to life? There is but one, and his name is Jesus, and he also happened to be God too. Jesus rose from the grave for our sins that we might be reconciled to God, and therefore he is deserving of all our worship, and we know we can put our worship in him because of the resurrection. He's the only one. He's the only one that can stand the weight But then look at Jesus' response at the end. And it's worship that is genuine. They actually don't have genuine worship. They have the opposite of genuine worship. They are treating Jesus like a spectacle. They want to see the show. They're coming to Jesus to see what he can do. They are not coming to Jesus because of who he is or what he has done. This is the circus for them. It's the crowd at the high school that gathers around when the two people are going to fight. Anyone that go to public school have that experience? There was like, oh, there's a fight in the mall. And everyone would run. The mall is where our cafeteria was. There's a fight in the gym. And ever, they're going to fight on the field after school. They want to come watch because it's a spectacle. But Jesus knows their hearts because he is omniscient. He is God. Genuine worship, worship that is genuine, is worship that comes to God for the right reasons. It is worship that places faith in him and trusts him because of who he is. And not simply because what he can show. Many people will later come to Jesus and get fed by him, see him multiply bread and fish, and then depart because he says something difficult. Genuine worship is rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. He knows our hearts, friends. Is our hearts, are our hearts worshiping him properly? Or have we gone astray? Have we gone awry? Our question for us to consider for this week is, how is God calling us to respond to him with proper worship? Do you have something in your life that is competing for your worship of God? This can happen in believers' lives. There are times where Jesus will call us to get rid of things in our life that is competing for his attention? Or is your worship genuinely centered on God and who God is? Or is it centered on what he can give you? Sometimes people come to Jesus because what they think they can get out of him. He wants so much more because he's worth way more. Friends, is your worship in the right place this week? 
In a moment, we will pray and we will ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us any area where he might be asking us to course correct in our worship. And if in that quiet moment, the Lord puts it on your heart that you need to make a change and you want to pray with someone, we're going to have some individuals up there who would love to pray with you. Or if you want to talk with one of your pastors, myself, Pastor Joel, Pastor Allen, about what it is you feel like God is leading you to make a change, we would love to pray with you, talk with you, counsel you, shepherd you through that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you work in such a way to remove the false worship from our lives. Lord, we thank you that even before we understood that our worship was wrong, you came in and corrected course for us. Lord, in this moment, we ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us any way in which our worship has gone awry. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us anything that is competing for our worship. Jesus, we know that you care about worship. Lord, you care about it because you deserve it. You deserve every ounce of praise we can give because of what you have done for us. God, you also deserve it. You also desire it for us because it is what is good for us. It is what you have made us to do. Some saints before us hundreds of years ago said, what is the chief end of man but to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Lord, that is our chief end. And we desire to do so. Help us to do it rightly. Precious and holy name we pray. Amen. My friends, this week, may your worship be centered on the one who is worthy of all our worship. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in his peace.